If you've found Colossians 3, we will then start in a moment from verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is uh, a few weeks ago now that we were last in Colossians 3, and we've arrived at this section now where, where Paul is giving instructions to the church. He's, he's set out, he's tried to uh, correct certain errors, he's tried to uh, make, make sure they're clear on who Jesus is. Try to make sure they're, they're clear on kind of not going down a legalistic line anymore, but just believing in Christ, believing in what he's done for us as the means by which we come into relationship with God, that we don't get kind of hung up with um, other spiritual beings they were getting interested in back then. So he's, he's rolled through all of that. He now comes to this section. We've looked before at... Uh, negative instructions that, that Paul has given in the verses uh, before the ones we've just read, where he says, for example, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And we looked at that. We looked at sexual immorality. We've also looked at, at anger, slander, and obscene talk. These things he's saying, okay, church, put those things away. Don't have anything to do with those things. Those were the negative instructions. And now we've come to start looking at the positive instructions. Here are the things, church, to really get hold of. Here are the things that are to kind of be uh, your, your traits, your characteristics. As you, as you learn to be more like Christ, put on these things. And so we started looking at that. So last time we were in Colossians, we started to look at this. Uh, what is a healthy church? Well, we looked at three things uh, that help us understand what a healthy church is. We looked at how... Um, Jesus is the center of everything in the church. A healthy church has Jesus right at the center. He's kind of crazy and focused on Jesus, on who he is, what he's done. Everything else spins out of that central focus on him. We looked at how a healthy church won't actually be perfect. Uh, that on this earth, since we're not perfect and since... Um, we've not yet kind of risen to glory, uh, we're going to need to do things like bear with one another. We're going to need to do things like forgive one another. And we aren't to be kind of caught off guard if our kind of expectations of someone else um, aren't kind of lived out. We're to kind of give each other some slack. And we saw the third thing, which really sums up a lot of what he's saying here in this passage, is a healthy church is a united church. You don't get a body which um, uh, is healthy if, if one limb is suddenly detached. Uh, that would be kind of grotesque. Instead, a healthy church is one that is 
that is united. They're together. They're with each other. They're, they're investing in their relationships. They're not kind of uh, just holding grudges and that kind of thing. And they're moving on together. So that's where we've come from. That's what we've looked at so far. We're going to kind of continue that theme today, looking at what, what makes a healthy church still, what makes a united church, focusing on some more of these positive instructions. We see this message of unity, this message of peace, as it were, continue when we look at verse 15, really summing up what we've said so far. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Jesus has called us into a relationship of peace with our Heavenly Father, and that peace is also to rule the relationships we have with, with one another. We were called together to be in this one body, called to be united together as one people moving forward. So it's to be thankful for what God's done there. So three further things that come from this passage that show us what is a healthy church. Number one, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So here, the word of Christ is, again, central to the health of the church. A church is going to be healthy and united where it is giving a high regard for the word of Christ. It's interesting there that it doesn't, Paul could have said, presumably, scripture. He could have said, let scripture dwell in you richly. Let the word dwell in you richly. But he wanted to emphasize again, this is all about Jesus. This is the message of Jesus. We've got Jesus' words that he spoke uh, when he was on the earth. But this whole book is a message of God's good news to us through Christ. So Paul is emphasizing again, Jesus is the center. A church can only be united. A church can only be healthy if it is totally convinced and centered around uh, Christ and what he's revealed to us in his word. That it would dwell in us richly. That the word of Christ would kind of find its home amongst us. I don't know if you've ever come across uh, anyone, maybe you are a person like this, who's, who kind of collects specific things all the same. If you, if you go on holiday, you'll always be looking out for one thing. If you're Phil Horton, you'll have your eye out on sunflowers, um, collecting stuff to do with sunflowers. I know someone who's just ridiculously keen on penguins. And so you walk into the house, you walk into the front room, and you find a cabinet, and in there are kind of an infinite number almost of ornate kind of uh, penguins that have been collected from anywhere, little bits of pottery or whatever. You go elsewhere, go into the bedroom, and there's, uh, there's cuddly toys, penguins. You go into the kitchen, and there's a mug, and it's got a penguin on it. Uh, you know, the friend walks into the room and is wearing penguin slippers on their feet. I mean, that starts to suggest a certain keenness for penguins. It's slightly bizarre, but you can't miss the point. You walk into that house and you know, okay, this person collects penguins. Now, whether they're now keen on penguins or not, everyone will just buy penguins for them because they think, oh, that's what they collect. For us, it's like the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, wherever you go in your life, or whether someone observes you in your life, the word of Christ is never far away because it's dwelling there. It's kind of rich. It's, it's, it's been collected. Ah, oh, yeah, we've, I've got hold of that over there. I've kind of, 
I've got hold of that and I'm going to store it up for a time when I need that, that promise or that encouragement or, or when I can observe what this character in the Bible went through. I'm going to take hold of that. I'm going to make it almost, I'm going to make it my own. I'm going to take hold of it, digest it. It's going to become part of my life. It's going to dwell richly in me. So a healthy church is happy when the word of God is abundantly available and is treated with high regard. Where the word of Christ is like a cornerstone or a foundation around which everything else is built. Everything else finds its place around the word of Christ. Decisions, plans, vision, ideas is all centered on the word of Christ. That is what determines kind of how everything else looks. That's the thing that kind of grabs our attention, the word of Christ. It goes on to say what we do with the word of Christ in two words, teaching and admonishing, to teach and to admonish. So a healthy church sees that the word of God is a great blessing in both a positive and a negative way. It's great, a great blessing when it says, do this, put on that, pursue this. The word of God also blesses us when it says, don't do that, go this way. If you look at Psalm 1, it kind of describes there someone who has allowed the word of Christ to dwell richly in him. And it says this in, in Psalm 1, reading from verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he, that he does, he prospers. There's a great blessing that comes from the word. It's like this tree that's planted by a stream, always uh, drawing water, always drawing uh, nourishment, always helping it to grow because it's, it's dwelling close to the word. And there's teaching and admonishing. There's even a blessing. The word blesses us kind of when it tells us off. The word blesses us when it redirects us. The word blesses us when it helps us to see something we hadn't seen before. I can remember, uh, for me personally, uh, an example of being admonished. I was admonished. If That might sound like a strange word. It kind of means to be warned or to be cautioned. I can remember one particular example when I was cautioned. And it was helpful. I didn't recognize it right at the time. But the word of Christ came in, helped me to see that I needed to, uh, to follow what he was saying. The situation was, someone had contacted me, a friend, good friend, and with a suggestion, with a, with a plan um, that would involve kind of going away and uh, getting involved in a band that would uh, do that kind of stuff for a bit. And I thought, well, it's going to be with a bunch of people who aren't saved. Uh, I'll, I'll be leaving the church for a couple of weeks. Um, but maybe this would be an opportunity to witness. And so I was, I'm, cautiously I was warm to the idea. It was actually my mother who said to me, and I was surprised by the strength of what she said, but she felt strongly about it. She said, no, don't do it. Don't, don't go that way. I don't think that is going to be helpful for you to, to go off and do that project. It might sound inviting. It might sound uh, kind of rewarding. You might even be able to spiritualize it by saying it will be a great witness but I think you're not going to do yourself any favour. And I was, 
I was kind of struck by this. I felt, I'm a, I'm a guy, I am going for God, I'm, I'm wanting to seek his will for my life. Someone has told me that I've been thinking of going down this path, and they think it's a wrong idea. And I was struggling before God. I thought, oh, I, and I was probably struggling with a reaction of pride. I thought that by now I was wise enough to make uh, good decisions. Uh, and this admonishing, this warning came. I was actually in a prayer meeting, and uh, I was just struggling to worship. I was struggling to engage in what was going on. And I just said to God, look, I need to find something in the Word that is going to help me to move on from this point. I probably wanted to find something in the Word that was going to encourage me in the plan that I already had, because I quite liked the idea. God directed me to Proverbs 1. And as I read through that first chapter, God just convicted me. Verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are graceful garland to your head, and pendants for your neck. Oh, thank you, Lord. (laughs) I was admonished, but the word helped me there. I didn't like what it said to start with, but I saw that God directed me there because he wanted to teach me a lesson. In that instance, I'd been given some very good advice and I needed to take it. So, so if you're here and you still live with your parents and your parents are going for God, it is a good thing if your parents are willing to admonish you. It is a good thing if your parents are willing to caution you and say, actually, that's not a good idea. If the word of God is dwelling in mum and dad, what they bring to you will be of great value. It might not be what you have wanted straight away, but actually God has given wisdom to your parents and that will help you and put you in good stead. So we want to pay attention to admonishing and to teaching and to the word of Christ that would dwell amongst us richly. How else are we to go about handling this? Well, this responsibility is too great just to be left with one person. It says here that we are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. That means it's not just uh, from from the podium here. It's not just from formal settings. It's actually that when we're in and amongst each other, uh, meeting uh, informally or whatever, that we're looking to bring the word of Christ to each other. We're looking to bring encouragement, teaching, kind of spurring on. We're also open to bringing and receiving a caution or a demonishing. Not a heavy-handedness, not a very strong, you mustn't do that, but actually we are, it's good, a church is healthy, if there is that kind of freedom to, to bring suggestions from the Word of God that might direct us to a different, uh, a different path than we'd originally seen. That was what Paul wanted in, in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 28. It says there, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So that's what he saw uh, part of his ministry is doing. But actually when he comes to address the church, he's also saying, yeah, this is for everyone. We're all involved in teaching. We're all involved in, uh, in, in bringing the word of Christ, which sometimes has an admonishing effect. So then the wider question is, not just about uh, parents and children, but more broadly, um, who are your closest friends? And are they people who are likely to encourage you to dig deeper into the word of God? Are they people who are likely to say, actually, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm your friend, but I'd suggest that because the word says this, that's not the best idea for you. 
good friends are those who can bring that. Actually, sometimes our, our closest friends may have no particular value in the word of Christ at all. And if we go to them for advice or we go to them for wisdom, it's not going to be godly wisdom, but worldly wisdom. So what sort of friends are your closest friends? What sort of friend are you to other people? Looking to bring the word of Christ? Looking to bring encouragement, exhortation, encouragement and admonishing? That is our call together to be friends amongst each other who are bringing the word of Christ, allowing it to dwell richly in us. It moves on to the second thing I'd like to draw our attention to. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So singing. Paul is saying something about singing in the context of a healthy church. Or if you want to keep, uh, if you're taking notes, you could have the first one as word. You could have this second point maybe as worship, but the word there is, is singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Recognize this, that it's not giving a separate instruction. It's not saying something very uh, defined about the word and then changing, crunching gear and talking about singing. One flows from the other. Singing is like the overflow or the, the cascade that comes out of this massive reservoir of the word that's been that's been built up. So as we're singing today, it's, a, it's to be an overflow of praise that comes because we've understood about things that are in the Word of God. That's why it's so excellent to sing songs, in, indeed like that last one, that are rich in biblical truth. That we're, we're keen to sing songs that, yeah, musically have, have kind of something dynamic about them, but actually are dynamic because there's a richness of, of what they're saying about the word of God. It's not just like, I like the way this tune goes. It's, I like what this song is saying about God. This song amazes me. This song reminds me about God. One commentator has said this, the history of Christian awakening shows that whenever the word of Christ is recovered, it is received with great joy, a joy that can fully express itself only with songs of praise. And that's what you see in, in stories of revival. Uh, meetings that would run from 8 o'clock to midnight. Reading recently about the, the Hebridean revival in the uh, late 40s and early 50s. Meetings that would start at 8 o'clock in the evening, roll on till half past one in the morning because the people had heard the word. It was so gripping them. They were so amazed and convicted by the presence of God, that singing couldn't be held back. In fact, it wasn't even confined to meetings. You would just, you'd hear people singing out and about in, in fields uh, about daily work. There'd just be the sound of kind of rejoicing on the air because God's presence was so remarkably there. God had uh, opened up, as it were, the word of Christ, which people were receiving uh, with great joy. It overflowed in songs of praise and thanksgiving. So, a church is always to be a community of people who are singing praises to God, where there's freedom and there's variety of singing. It mentions here psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think probably we have to be honest and say, we can't now say exactly what that may have meant for the Colossian church. 
I wonder what the psalm was, the hymn was, and the spiritual songs. What, what was that referring to exactly? Can't be exactly sure. Certainly seems to be um, referring to variety. Um, that, it was, that it was scriptural, the point here being that it was the word of Christ that was overflowing in the songs that were being sung. There was a freedom and a boldness to sing. So I've been thinking about that. I've been wondering, is there, is there anything for us nowadays that stifles um, or prevents us uh, from enjoying freedom as we sing? And I thought, I wonder what effect it's had that in our culture there are so many, uh, uh, say, TV programs that are focused around uh, performance, that are so focused around entertainment, so X Factor, or Britain's Got Talent, highly entertaining, at times cringeworthy, I just want to hide when I watch it, um, super overconfident people who essentially lead ordinary lives, who've got delusions of grandeur and uh, are seeking after fame. What happens is they get onto a stage and the whole nation listens to them sing. And then this panel of expert judges casts their kind of verdict on it. And they can be ruthless. I thought, I wonder what effect that has. Then as it hits the tabloids and hits the news, and people are kind of commenting on this, uh, this new up-and-coming uh, wannabe who hopefully is re- you know, uh, releasing an album at Christmas, and some people go and buy it, and some people are just slating it because it's, ah, it's, I'm a purist. Now, all that criticism that's going on, how does that affect us in the church as we sing? Are we thinking, what do people think about my voice? What do people think about how I'm doing? We can be used to kind of a a spectator um, kind of performance model when we come into a church building. Actually, and the point is we're singing together praises to God. You might be thinking, my voice isn't all that amazing. If you listen quite carefully, you'll probably find you're not the only one. But that is no discouragement for praising God. So let's have a look at Psalm 100. This is a fantastic encouragement uh, for us. The very beginning of Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. The key is joyful. It may be a noise or it may be singing. But the key, the encouragement is, let's make a joyful noise. When we gather together, let's allow ourselves to be kind of uninhibited as we lift up our voices. The key is being joyful. The key is with thankfulness in your hearts to God, as it says there in Colossians. This isn't just an outward show or we're kind of entertaining ourselves. A healthy church is so thankful in its heart to God that it flows out in this joyful noise. I was interested to... uh, to learn that the very first place in the Bible that singing is mentioned is in Exodus chapter 15, when Moses leads the people of Israel in singing. Now, why is that remarkable? Because God had just rescued Israel. God has just rescued his people from Egypt, from slavery. All those plagues had taken place. Then the Passover took place where God had said he's going to kill the firstborn. But he said to those who belong to him, paint the blood of a lamb on the doorposts 
of your house. Stay in there and I will pass over you. He passed over that the blood of a lamb was shed that they might be saved. They were then brought out of that nation with a mighty outstretched arm. They got to this impossible position of the sea being in their way and an army pursuing them. God opens up the sea. They go through. Therefore, Moses leads them in singing. And again, that is the first place that singing is mentioned in the Bible. At the very point where you would imagine there's quite a lot of thankfulness. They've just seen in the recent past, immediately in their experience, God has done something awesome. What's the response? We want to sing. We want to glorify, glorify him. And that's the case for us. We're looking back to what Christ has done. We're looking back to his blood shed for us that's been put on us, saving us from God's wrath. We can also be thinking of things that God has done in our immediate past. That's why it's so helpful sometimes to be hearing testimonies about what God has done kind of in the here and now, what God has been doing in our lives this week and giving thanks for that. Sometimes there's just a great kind of as a great rise as we can join with someone in rejoicing at maybe an awesome answer to prayer that has come in healing or in something else. So there is great thankfulness and therefore it leads to great uh, singing and a variety of singing that is totally free and wonderful. So we've had the word of Christ, a healthy church is allowing, is letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly. The, The healthy church, a united church, just loves to sing praise to God. There's a thankfulness at the core of a healthy church that can't help express itself in song. Even in spontaneous ways, outside of meetings, uh, we're a people known for singing. Recently, I was, um, Rachel and I were at a, a wedding. I don't know if I've commented on weddings before, but we went to a wedding recently, and the couple getting married were, uh, were Christian, um, and it was a, a fantastic occasion. The, the, set, the service just, yeah, just had something authentic about it, singing the praises of God. We were there with some, some friends who um, are not, uh, not Christian, and they were struck. They were struck by the service. They were struck by the singing. They weren't struck by the, by the quality of the harmonies. I mean, possibly that was the case. But what they were struck by, as they went on just to mention afterwards, was that there was something behind it. It was like, people really mean this, don't they? This is really coming out... There's something on the inside of people. There's a thankfulness. There's something genuine and authentic going on here. And that was witnessing to people, thinking, what's going on? Why is this different? This is not just any old singing. This is singing that actually witnesses to people that says, "Here's here's some folk who's got hold of something. What is it? It raises questions. It causes people to search. That is what what singing does in a community of people who are just thankful in their hearts, overflowing to God. So the word of Christ, singing or worship, in your notes if you want to keep with uh, the, the, the W's, the third one could be entitled, Whatever. Um, verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now you could think, is Paul just here giving some kind of vague, kind of catch-all term? Oh, and uh, uh, yeah, whatever you do, um, yeah, do it well. Now he's being, he's, he's being deliberate in this. Now for us, 
the word whatever is perhaps the single most dismissive word we could ever use. You know, if we're chatting to someone and they say whatever, you know, that kind of just, whatever the argument, whatever the conversation was, kind of cuts it dead. Paul's obviously not using the word in that sense. And he's not just being vague. He is saying, yeah, in, in every part of our lives, we want God to be honoured and glorified. There's something else I'd like us to see about this. He's been suggesting things, he's been instructing things that are essential for a healthy church life. Interesting then, that he gets to verse 17, he doesn't spell out every single activity of the church in minute detail. So what he doesn't say is, well, you do understand what we did in Ephesus was this. So you, you should really do, you should really mirror exactly what we did in Ephesus. So I was there for a couple of years and we had the meetings at a certain part of the day and this is how it went. So, so copy us in everything we do. Nor did he say, uh, yes, and I, originally, obviously, I came from Antioch. So in the Antioch church, we had a fantastic uh, such and such a work. So you really ought to do what we were doing in Antioch. You're saying, no, it's not, it's not just a copycat mentality. It's no, each church hearing from God about what, about what it is called to do, what God is calling a church to do. Whatever you do, there's some autonomy there. A church has a call to seek God and say to God, where are you actually leading us and directing us? Whatever we do, it will be our aim to be united together. It will be our aim to give high regard to the word of God and base everything on that. Whatever we do, we'll want to be a people who are worshipping God and singing his praise. But the church has a commission or a mission from God to fulfill into which all of those things come. So we see that when Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew 28, before he ascended, after he'd uh, been crucified, after he'd raised uh, to life again, he'd spent time with them, before raising to the Father in heaven, he said this in verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is a mission for God's church to step into. So there's always going to be things the church needs to keep a firm grip on if it's going to be united, if it's going to be healthy, if it's going to succeed in its mission. It always needs to keep a firm grip on the Word of God. It always needs to keep a firm grip on the identity of Jesus, understanding who Jesus is. It's going to keep a firm grip. I'd encourage us, let's keep a firm grip on things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we've seen something, we've experienced something of what God's Spirit does amongst his people. We're going to keep a hold of that. We're going to keep a hold of being a united church. That is going to be firmly in our hands. Other things are going to change and be in a hand with a looser grip, a more open grip. And the things that are going to change, or the things that are in that hand, are our programs, are the things that we do, thing, our projects, things that might change from time to time. The kind of how we go about doing something cha changes over time. The mission stays the same. Go, make disciples. But obviously every church has got to work that out in the context that they're in, in the culture and in the time that they're in. And so um, with that commission from Jesus, right away there is something dynamic. It's go. It's no longer saying to the lost, uh, come and find out, 
come over here, you can come and see what we do. It's no, the people of God are those on a mission uh, reaching, reaching out. That can mean for a church that there are seasons of change because things remain in that dynamic uh, phase. So think of the early church in, in Acts 13. That's the church in Antioch gathered together, praying and fasting, worshipping the Lord. And then in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. God's Holy Spirit sent, said something to that specific church at that time. Send Barnabas and Saul. What would that have been like for the people who remained in Antioch? They'd been used to Barnabas and Saul being there, teaching them, encouraging them. There's a change, there's a potential there to be unsettled. But actually, no, there is a commission. There is a mission to keep going. Change does take place. You think of a guy also like Philip a few chapters earlier in Acts 8. Seeing God do amazing things in Samaria, loads of people coming to know Christ. In Acts 8 and verse 26, this happens. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now God had a purpose in saying that to Philip. Philip wouldn't have known that at the time. He was to go and meet this Ethiopian eunuch who he was going to bring to Christ. But how would have that felt for Philip? Leaving a situation, it felt, oh, this is really alive. This is, fruit is being uh, yielded here. Uh, Lord, I'd love just to stay here for longer. No, the word is, go this way now. I'm changing. I've, I've called you to bear fruit elsewhere in a different way, in a different season. How would have that have felt for Philip? to step into those changes. So sometimes, in church life, um, God can cause people to move on. Sometimes it's that programs change. And that's certainly what we were talking about on, uh, on our family night on Friday. Plans for us as a church, keeping hold of the Word of God, keeping hold of desire to worship Him, bearing in mind this mission and call to go and make disciples, actually we're going to change the way we do things. And so rather than being one church that meets in one location, uh, come September we're going to become one church that meets in two locations. Meeting here in the Jubilee Centre, reaching people here in this community, in this part of Sheffield where some, uh, many of us live, uh, and another community going and reaching out in Shirecliff where the church, City Church Sheffield is going to meet there too. Because we want to go and meet, we want to go and win people for Christ. We're going to keep a firm hold of things. But other things we're going to, we can see change in. Now there's a, a sad story. I don't know if it's um, kind of a, a combination of other stories, whether it's actually happened, where um, a young, uh, hopeful pastor goes to um, speak to uh, church leaders that are looking to maybe take him on as their leader, and he speaks to the head deacon who's been there for 40 years. And uh, the, this head deacon says, Young man, he said, I've been a deacon during the time that seven different pastors have served this church. The hopeful next pastor replied, You must have seen a lot of changes in that time. Yes, replied the deacon, and I've resisted every one of them. That is 
uh, a sad caricature, a caricature of what can happen in church life. Where, if we use that image again of you know, holding things firmly in one hand, but lightly in another, it's almost like they've swapped things over. It's like things like the building, the program, the way we do things here, becomes really firmly held. And sometimes, actually, in unhealthy churches, things that should be held onto really tightly, the Word of Christ, the Spirit of God amongst us, who Jesus is, uh, being a united church together and worshipping Him, actually, those things start to fritter away. A church loses a sense of the dynamic presence of God because they've allowed the Word of Christ to no longer dwell in them richly. They've kind of let that go, but they're keeping hold of the fact that they've still got pews. Or they're keeping hold of the fact, no, you can't do that to the building. Or keeping hold of the fact that's not the way we do things around here. And things get totally reversed. So it's important that we firmly keep a hold of what makes for a healthy church. That we are giving ourselves to being uh, crazy for Jesus. We're giving ourselves to being absolutely committed to maintaining unity, maintaining uh, peace uh, amongst each other, committed to the word of God, committed that it's not just there to provide us with the odd kind of thought for the day. It's there to govern, lead, direct every decision, every part of our lives. That's what makes for a healthy church. A healthy church where that just then overflows in thankfulness to God. Where we're thanking him for what he's done for us by his blood. We're thanking him for what he's been doing in our lives these last few days and weeks. And so we're keeping hold of that, but there's flexibility. We're not keeping hold of all the programs. Things can change. A healthy body needs to be flexible. You know, a healthy body could have every organ and every muscle absolutely sorted. But if there's arthritis and or a lack of flexibility, actually, it's not healthy. You can't do much with a body that is restricted in that way. There needs to be a degree of, uh, of flexibility. That's what we want to be together. And that's how, this is what we need to understand in terms of, this is what God is doing in the church. Now, how does this apply to me? How is the word of Christ dwelling in my life? Is that thankfulness in me welling up? And so on. But let's be a people who are seeking health, who are seeking to be united in what God has got for us as a church.